The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Speedlight Bravo. Go back through a couple of hundred plain tales, and if you pick out the eighth that I did, you'll find the story of the Tsar Bomba, the King of Bombs. The Central Intelligence Agency had blandly dubbed it Joe 111, and the Russian physicists involved merely called it the Big Bomb. But the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev tellingly called it Kuzak's mother, a reference to an old Russian saying that meant you're about to teach someone a harsh and unforgettable lesson. If you can recall the story, you'll remember that the Tsar Bomba was the most powerful nuclear weapon ever detonated by any nation. The Soviet scientists originally intended the bomb to have a 100 megaton yield. They used a three-stage Tela-Ulam lithium dry fuel configuration, similar to the thermonuclear device first demonstrated by the United States during the Castle Bravo weapon, the first in a series of high-yield thermonuclear weapon design tests at the Bikini Atoll. Castle Bravo's yield was an unexpected 15 megatons, two and a half times the expected force, due to an unexpected reaction involving lithium-7, which led to radioactive contamination of large areas east of the atoll. The fallout of that weapon spread around the world, but it was most apparent on nearby US Navy ships, innocent Japanese fishing vessels and other atolls downwind. The fallout spread traces of radioactive material as far as Australia, India and Japan, and even the United States and parts of Europe. Though organized as a secret test, Castle Bravo quickly became an international incident prompting calls for a ban on the atmospheric testing of thermonuclear devices. It remains the largest weapon ever detonated by the United States. Concerns about the possible level of fallout from the Tsar Bomba prompted Russian scientists to use lead tampers that dialed down the yield to half the bomb's capability. Interestingly enough, Tsar Bomba was one of the cleanest nuclear weapons ever detonated because the bomb's design eliminated 97% of the possible fallout. However, a clean bomb wasn't the Soviet Union's main concern. Between 1949 and 1962, the Soviets set off 214 nuclear bombs in the open air until the United Nations banned atmospheric tests worldwide. The billions of radioactive particles released into the air, as was the case in the Castle Bravo test, exposed countless people to highly mutagenic and carcinogenic materials, resulting in a myriad of deleterious genetic maladies and deformities. It was earlier, on the 9th of September 1949, that the director of the CIA handed President Harry Truman a carefully worded report of an abnormal radioactive contamination in the northern Pacific that greatly exceeded normal levels in the atmosphere. 
Whilst uncertain as to the cause, the CIA's first hypothesis was that an atomic explosion had occurred on the continent of Asia. This proved to be accurate, as it was the first Soviet test of a nuclear device. A few days later, to the dismay of the Soviets, President Truman announced that they had the evidence to prove that within recent weeks an atomic explosion occurred in the USSR. In order to track the presence of radiological debris in the atmosphere, the US government had authorised the Air Force to undertake missions on behalf of the Air Force Office of Atomic Energy. The aircraft they used was a modified B-29 called AFOT-1 and designated a WB-29, the W relating to a weather service role. The aircraft was able to pass external air through fine filters, and after completing a flight from Misawa in Japan to Ellison in Alaska, the filters were examined with a huge Geiger counter, which revealed radioactive material. Afterwards, the aircraft had to be decontaminated by washing it down with a thick, gunky substance. It took a complex chain of events involving more flights to collect additional air samples, consultations among US government scientists and contractors, including radiological analysis by Tracer Lab and Los Alamos Laboratory, and secret conferences with the British government, for the US intelligence community to confirm their conclusion that Moscow had indeed conducted a nuclear test. The intelligence services in the United States called the first Soviet bomb Joe 1. The discovery that Washington had lost its nuclear monopoly would have a decisive impact on US diplomacy and military policy it was one of the stimuli for a 1950 intra-agency report which called for massive military spending to offset the political and military impact of Stalin's first bomb. Which is exactly what the Soviets had hoped to avoid by keeping their bomb project secret. Even when they responded to Truman's announcement, they did not acknowledge that they had tested a weapon. For many years, the US government kept the details of how they had detected Joe 1 secret, although that didn't stop informed journalistic speculation. No one, without a need to know and a very high security clearance, had any idea what Aflot 1 did. Nevertheless, the Soviets, who had been assiduously gathering intelligence on the US nuclear program, which saved them a year or two in building their own bomb, learned how the test had been detected from spies at the British Embassy. In the early 50s, the USAF's B-47 nuclear bomber came onto the scene, and it took part in Operation Greenhouse, Ivy, Castle and Red Wing, in a series of nuclear tests, the latter of which would be followed by a reconnaissance version of the same aircraft designed to sample the air for fallout. Designated the RB-47K, in addition to cameras, sideways-looking radar and air-sampling gear, it could drop weather sensors, which would radio back atmospheric data. 
Of course, the RB47Ks wouldn't just examine United States nuclear test data. It would be on the lookout for what could be gleaned from Soviet tests as well. In addition, these aircraft would be involved in operational missions overflying Soviet airfields, which began in 1952, and the USAF was soon routinely probing Soviet airspace. They could normally avoid confrontations by evading and using their speed to escape, but at least five were fired on and three shot down. The RB-47s returned fire with their tail turrets, equipped with a pair of radar-laid automatic M24A1 cannons, which had a cyclic rate of seven to 800 rounds a minute, but no kills were confirmed. It's interesting that the US Air Force didn't just rely on aircraft to detect Soviet nuclear bomb tests. They used balloons. Project Mogul was a highly classified project to fly high-altitude balloons with the aim of detecting the sound waves generated by nuclear explosions. The project was conceived by Maurice Ewing, who had researched sound movement through the water and had now turned his attention to the air. He theorised that there would be a certain air pressure and temperature where sound waves would propagate and stay within a narrow channel due to refraction, travelling long distances. In order to carry the array of disc microphones and radio transmitters required, the team developed enormous polyethylene plastic balloons which, through release of ballast, could maintain a relatively constant altitude. The project was moderately successful but was very expensive and was superseded by a network of seismic detectors and air sampling for fallout, which was cheaper, more reliable and easier to deploy and operate. Of course, the cancellation of Mogul might have been because of the decades of conspiracy theories that followed the crash of the Project Mogul Flight 4 balloon in the desert near Roswell, New Mexico. Unlike a weather balloon, the Project Mogul paraphernalia was massive and contained unusual types of materials. To the untrained eye, the reflectors looked extremely odd, a geometrical hash of lightweight sticks and sharp angles made of metal foil. Photographs of it, taken in 1947 and published in newspapers, show bits and pieces of what are obviously collapsed balloons and radar reflectors. A subsequent military cover-up of this top-secret balloon and the true nature of its flight have given rise to conspiracy theories from UFO enthusiasts ever since. The task of monitoring air samples moved on to at least three other types of aircraft, the U-2, the WB-50 Superfortress, and the JKC-135, a derivative of the KC-135 refuelling aircraft. Several U-2s were modified with air sampling equipment as part of the High Altitude Sampling Program, HASP, and flown by US Air Force pilots on Operation Crow Flight. This involved placing a valved air intake into the nose and air scoops mounted on the port and starboard sides of the fuselage 
to capture air samples and subsequently examine them for radioactive particles in the upper atmosphere. A large proportion of these ultra-secret U-2 missions were flown for the Air Force Special Weapon Project and later the Defence Nuclear Agency. When the French began test explosions, they continued to monitor those as part of Project Seeker. By the time the Soviet Union had moved on from their first nuclear weapon, Joe-1, to the Tsar bomber, Joe-111, those involved in air sampling missions had become very busy. The KC-135 was a recent addition to the USAF's inventory, and before long, with a handful of others, the fourth prototype serial 553127 was selected to be modified with a host of cameras and sensors to fly these missions. It had a large elongated inverted canoe fairing above the fuselage for optical instrumentation from visible, infrared and ultraviolet wavelengths. The aircraft had electromagnetic radiation sensors, photon detectors and a myriad of still and cine cameras. Other, more sensitive equipment was placed in lead-lined cargo holds. As the date of the Tsar bomber test explosion neared, Khrushchev had made no secret of the event. General Dynamics struggled to get the aircraft prepared in time for Speedlight Bravo. A crew was flown out to RAF Bryce Norton in the United Kingdom to fly the mission, led by an experienced pilot. A senior officer from their base had come along to try and find out what his men were going to do. He was told that they were going to fly an aircraft he could barely see, parked about a mile away in the fog. But I want to know what they'll be doing, he insisted. I just told you, was the terse reply. The crew took off and headed towards the long thin island of Novia Zemlya in the Arctic Circle. In the words of all recce crews, alone, unarmed and unafraid. When they got to the test site, they loitered at 45,000 feet, about 20 miles away. In the Russian bear carrying the huge weapon, Major Donovstev and his crew waved goodbye to their fighter escort and with only their Tu-16 Badger chase plane beside them, they flew up the coast of the test range. In the 135, the American pilots drew flash blinds across their cockpit windows and flying on instruments alone, they waited. When the vast bomb detonated, they watched the huge mushroom cloud spread over closed-circuit TV, and as the effects of the explosion reached them, they banked the aircraft to spread out the effects over as much as the airframe as possible. Even so, the blast cracked three of the four engine mounts and scorched the paint on the underside of the aircraft. Having completed their mission, the JKC-135 crew headed for home. How they had avoided being shot down is unexplained and remains classified. A crew who took part in at least 20 such missions described what went on. On landing, 
Their aircraft would be surrounded by teams carrying Geiger counters, but the crew, it seems, were given less attention. They used their bare hands to remove the filters from the air scoops used to collect ionized particles. They wore radiation dosimeters with their dog tags, and when a technician tested one, it went off the scale. It must be broken, he was told, and it was thrown into a trash can. Their detectors were then taken away from them and never replaced. One of their navigators began to feel unwell and vomited blood. What the cause was is unexplained, as whenever they were off duty it was after hours and the medical centre was closed. When they got back to the States, he was medically discharged. However, the evaluation of the tapes, films and air sample data at Los Alamos by the scientists there produced an abundance of previously unknown data highlighting the progress that the Soviets had made in nuclear technology. The pilot who volunteered for the mission, despite being told it was risky, is now retired, having gone on to fly three combat tours in Vietnam. When they returned from their speedlight missions, they were told never to talk about it, and no mention was ever made of the temporary assignment, nor did it appear in their records. However, he and his co-pilot felt that they deserved a medal. After two years of efforts to get the speed light flights partly declassified, in a small church, the aircraft commander was presented with a distinguished flying cross for the missions he flew in the face of great personal danger, as the citation read, which provided the nation with intelligence of incalculable value. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. Many thanks for listening.